you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them to Daniel chapter 4. If you're following along in your pew Bibles, it's on page 740. The title of today's sermon is The Most High Rules the Kingdom of Men. The Most High Rules the Kingdom of Men. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis shares this stirring and honestly convicting quote, uh, which highlights a main theme that's in today's text in Daniel chapter 4. And he says this. He says, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone loathes when he sees it in someone else and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered, or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault that makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking about is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. What is the greatest sin? If you remember Dustin's sermon from January 3rd, you know that it's not just Lewis who answers the question in this way. Augustine, Luther, Lewis, Edwards, many, many more are all in agreement here. It's pride. So I'm going to start out this sermon in the general area that we ended the last one. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Paul says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. In today's text, we will see that truth in full force. God detests pride, and he will not be mocked. But I want to start off today by giving you what I believe to be the main point of the text and the sermon from the beginning. So here's the sermon in a sentence, so to speak, and it comes from verse 32. The most high rules the kingdom of men. That's the main point of today's text. The most high rules the kingdom of men. In other words, God is sovereign over and to be glorified above everything. That's the main point of today's text and sermon. This text is about a journey from pride to humility through a massive fall followed by repentance. So let's dive in. First, I want us to see what happened at the end of chapter 3 from last week. Uh, I didn't really get into this much last week due to lack of time, but 
Do you remember what happened? God rescued Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the flames. And what was the response from Nebuchadnezzar the king? Daniel chapter 3, verses 28 through 30. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Pretty universally, Bible scholars agree that this that we just read at the end of chapter 3 wasn't a conversion. Notice how Nebuchadnezzar talks about God here. He says, the God of who? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He says, their own God. He sees that their God is able to rescue them, but at the end of the day, he's still their God, not his. He even seemed to try to appease their God by doing a good deed, right? He promoted them. But that's not the good news of the gospel, is it? That's not how the gospel works. See, Nebuchadnezzar believed that he had done a bad thing in setting up an idol and trying to kill God's servants and believed that he could make it right by doing a good thing, promoting them. See, the gospel says we can never do enough good deeds to earn God's favor or our right standing with God. But Jesus has. He lived righteously in every way we haven't and can't. We're made right with God through Jesus' righteousness and his death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. I start here simply to point out that at the end of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar didn't get the gospel. He wasn't converted. Yet... We start in chapter 4 with a seemingly changed man. Look at our, our first three verses here. Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So what in the world happened between chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4? Well, that's what the rest of this chapter is actually about. These first three verses are a result of the story we're about to hear in the rest of the chapter. So, Verses 1 through 3 actually happened after verses 4 through 37. So there's verses 1 through 3, then 
the rest of this chapter is going to kind of be a flashback to tell us what happened. But before we get into the actual story, there are some important truths to see in Nebuchadnezzar's proclamation here in chapters in verses 1 through 3. First, let's look at the scope of it. Who's he talking to? To all peoples, nations, and languages. Does that sound familiar? It's the same group that he had around his golden statue in chapter 3. It's also the same description of the throne of God in Revelation. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And here's what I'm wanting us to see. Nebuchadnezzar's proclamation is public and it's universal in scope. And it's good news. He says, peace be multiplied to you. It's not just a privately held belief for his home, his heart, and his pew. It's public. And he's proclaiming it universally. That's how each and every one of us should be in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. We're to herald the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation. While we're not universalist, believing that everyone will come to saving faith regardless of their path, we're not universalist, but we do believe in a universal gospel call. We don't know who will respond to the good news. So, we, like the sower in Jesus' parable, we scatter seeds all over the place, trusting that God will do with it what only he can do. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's proclamation is public and universal, but it's also very, very personal. Look at what he says here and how it's different from previous chapters. Look at verse 2. He says, It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Do you see that? He's proclaiming the truth universally. But he's not sharing some philosophical or abstract truth here. He's sharing what God did for him personally. Look what God taught him. He says, His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, again, that's the main point of this text and this sermon. What we're talking about here is a God who rules kings and kingdoms, but transforms people in deeply personal ways. That's the God of the Bible. Now, what happened to Nebuchadnezzar to get him to this point? Let's look. And I'm going to try to paraphrase it as much as I can to kind of help us move along in a long text. So the story starts in verse 4. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. In other words, things were pretty good at home. I was at ease in my house. 
And things were good at work, too. I was prospering in my palace. So he's killing it at life, right? Things are going pretty well for him at home and at work. But then, one night, he goes to sleep. Has one of those weird dreams again. Maybe a nightmare. He's not really sure. So what does he do? Well, he should have known what to do, right? Based on his past experience, chapter 2, he should have called Daniel right away. He knows that he can get a straight and true answer from Daniel. Maybe that's why he looked elsewhere first. But nonetheless, instead of calling Daniel, he calls for someone else. Look at verse 7. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astronomers came in, and I told them the dream. But they could not make known to me its interpretation. Bummer. I guess I have to call Daniel after all. Verse 8. At last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream. Now, it's subtle, but did you catch what Nebuchadnezzar called him there? Daniel. In the retelling of the story, he calls him his real name even though he reminds the audience of the previous name change. He calls him Daniel. That's significant. He's recognizing his identity under God again. And and he clearly already recognizes that there's a different spirit in Daniel than all the other clowns in his court. I wonder this morning, is this true of you? When someone's struggling through something, In your office, or in your neighborhood, or in your family, do they recognize that you, Christian, have a different spirit? Do they reach out to you for counsel? See, Nebuchadnezzar knew that from Daniel he would get the truth. But he also knew that he'd get compassion and humility. That's powerful, Christians. That's our high calling, to live life in such a way that people look to you for truth, compassion, and humility. When people in your sphere of influence who have it all together at home and at work, when those people experience a crisis, will you be ready to share Christ? And I want us to recognize that Things like this weren't happening every day in Daniel's life. I know that we read one chapter after another. It's easy to think, whoa, Daniel resisted in chapter one. The next day, he's interpreting dreams. The next day, his friends are in a fire. The next day, he's interpreting dreams again. Not exactly. Remember that this book takes place over 70 years of Daniel's life. These nine events were probably pretty spaced out over those 70 years. Most of the days of Daniel's life were probably pretty boring, mundane, ordinary. But he was faithful in those times. 
And that led him to being called forward in these big moments. Do you see that? Okay, so he calls in Daniel to interpret the dream. And this time, instead of making Daniel tell him what the dream was, like in chapter 2, he just starts talking. He says, this is what I dreamed. There was this huge tree. It was cosmic. It had everything. Beauty, fruit, shelter, and shade. It kind of took care of everyone around it. Then, a watcher, a holy one from heaven, showed up and said, Chop it down. Strip it bare. Scatter all the bystanders. But leave the stump. Leave the roots. Then it gets kind of weird. This watcher who's talking about this giant tree starts speaking of the tree as if it's a man. Maybe like an ant for you Lord of the Rings fans out there. The tree becomes a hymn. Verses 15 and 16. So he's speaking about this tree that's going to get chopped down. He says, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast of the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's. And let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. Okay, so this tree is going to be laid low. He's going to live in the grass. He's going to eat grass like a beast. His mind is going to be changed to a beast for seven periods of time. Why? Well, look at verse 17. This is the key verse for the entire text. Verse 17. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules over the kingdom of men, and it gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. Did you know that during Bible times, they didn't have highlighters? <laughs> I mean, modern computing is pretty amazing. Um, if I want to highlight or emphasize something, I, I click a button. Make it bold, use italics, or use big font. But Bible writers didn't even have highlighters. Cool, Drew, why, why are you telling us this? Well, because in place of highlighters, biblical authors often use repetition so that we'll get the point. And that's exactly what's happening here. There's three big sections in chapter 4. And each section ends with basically the same thing. Verse 17, verse 25, and verse 32. The Most High rules the kingdom of men. That's why God gave this dream to Nebuchadnezzar. He wanted him to know this truth. He wants us to know this truth in bold letters. So the king tells Daniel the dream. And in verses 4 through 18, 
Uh, then, then look at Daniel and the king's reaction to the dream. Verse 19. It says, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. Daniel has no problem understanding the dream when he hears it. In fact, he understands it a little too well. He's dismayed, alarmed. In many ways, he kind of doesn't want to tell the king. He humbly says, I, I wish this dream was for your enemies bad. Now, I'll just stop right there for a second. I gotta be honest. The best part of preaching, and sometimes the worst part of preaching, is when a truth hits you as the preacher right between the eyes. This is one of those moments. When I was studying this text, I got to this part and had to do a double take. This is Nebuchadnezzar we're talking about here. An idolatrous, totalitarian king who has enslaved God's people. And here's Daniel being kind to him. Not hoping the worst for him, but hoping the best. Brutal honesty here. That hasn't been my heart for many of our leaders. I've tended to hope that they get what's coming to them. I've had to repent of that this week. Daniel's is the heart of Jesus. Look at Luke chapter 19. Luke 19, verses 41 and 42. So this is talking about Jesus. It says, when he drew near and saw the city, speaking of Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, would that you... Even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. Jesus knew that this was the city that would eventually nail him to the cross. Yet, he weeps for them. And wants them to know the things that make for peace. It's a little different than the posture of Jonah outside Nineveh waiting and hoping for judgment, right? Daniel lives faithfully. He resists when necessary. He speaks the truth boldly. But he's humble. He has a tender heart. He hopes for the best, even for wicked kings. And in the midst of that hope, he speaks the truth. So picture this. They're in the palace which eventually became one of the seven wonders of the world. It's known as the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Got a, a picture, a rendering here for us. So they're in that palace. And Daniel says, I hate to tell you this, but the tree you saw in your dream was you. You're going to be cut down. Look at verses 24 and 25. He says, this is the interpretation, O king. 
It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. There it is again. And gives it to whom he will. Do you see what's happening? What was already on the inside of Nebuchadnezzar is being brought to life. But Nebuchadnezzar was bestial. Now he's going to live like one for seven periods of time. But we don't know what that time period was. But remember that number seven in scripture represents fullness or completion. So God's going to humble this man until it's complete, until his purposes are fulfilled. Understand this. There's clear judgment in this interpretation. As Christians, we have to be willing to share the bad news with people. The news that they're not right with God. That God is not pleased with them. There's also hope. Look at verses 26 and 27. It says, And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel clearly calls the king to repentance. He says, break off your sins. But he gives hope. He says, there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. The tree is laid alone, but the roots and the stump are bound and left alone. There's hope if the king repents. And that's our message, Christians. God is not pleased with sin. He's not pleased with idolatry and wickedness and pride. Repent. And there's hope. That's our message. Now, what will Nebuchadnezzar do with this? Nothing. Nothing. Isn't that unbelievable? He doesn't repent. He keeps on trucking forward in his pride and in his arrogance. This is a warning for us. You may not be like King Nebuchadnezzar today. You may not have a prophet standing in front of you like Daniel. But God's word is no less real. Every time you hear a sermon preached, every time You open the word of God and read. It's no less real than this moment in Daniel. Has God revealed sin in your life? If so, you have the same decision as this king. Will you repent? Or will you do nothing? Nebuchadnezzar does nothing. Maybe... It's just because he's that hard-hearted. Or maybe he just believed that he'd get around to it later. We don't know. 
Look at verses 28 through 30. It says, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? He went for a full year, 12 months, totally ignoring God's words to him. He's up on his rooftop, a wonder of the world. He's looking down on everyone. Look at this language. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my power for the glory of my majesty, God will not be mocked. He's patient, but he will not be mocked. Look at verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. Then... God did what he said he was going to do. He always does. Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy. He eats grass. His hair grows long as eagle's feathers. His nails were like bird's claws. Remember in chapter 1, how we discussed that question from the beginning of Daniel. God's people are in captivity. All his stuff was taken away. Has God lost? Remember that? God's people and the things of the temple are dragged off by this all-powerful king. But God had not lost. He was quite in control of every single moment. The Most High rules the kingdom of men. Well, what happens next is quite remarkable. Verse 34. It says, at the end of the days, I, so it's Nebuchadnezzar speaking in first person again, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. In God's perfect, full timing, Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes, where? To heaven. Last time we left him in the story, he was up on a roof, looking down on everyone. But now, his eyes are lifted to heaven. He's looking up from a humbled place. Friends, if you ever want to be humbled, don't look to yourself. Don't look at others. Look up at God. It's easy to think you're awesome when you're looking around at other sinful human beings, right? But it's impossible to think you're awesome when you rightly look up at God. Listen to what John Calvin says in the first couple of pages of his Institutes. This is chapter 1, book 1. He says this. He says, Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, 
consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected together by many ties, it is not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. For in the first place, no man can survey himself without forthwith turning his thoughts toward the God in whom he lives and moves. Because it is perfectly obvious that the endowments which we possess cannot possibly be from ourselves. Nay, that our very being is nothing else than subsistence in God alone. In the second place, those blessings which unceasingly distill to us from heaven are like streams conducting us to the fountain. Here again, the infinitude of good which resides in God becomes more apparent from our poverty. In particular, the miserable ruin to which the revolt of the first man has plunged us compels us to turn our eyes upwards, not only that while hungry and famishing, we may thence ask what we want, but being aroused by fear, we may learn humility. The first several pages of the Institutes are amazing, but his point in that quote is this. When we look at God, we rightly understand ourselves to be bankrupt. Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes to heaven. He's humbled. He's repentant. And he finally acknowledges God as the Most High God correctly. Who or what is your most high? Who or what is your most high? Is it yourself? Your job or money? Your talent? Anything that holds the place of most high in your life is an idol. And so often, that idol is our own pride. That's you today. I call you to repent. Between you and God, repent. Change your mind, change your heart, change your actions. Turn the other way and let go of your sin. So what does this look like? Look at what Nebuchadnezzar says as he's repenting. Verse 34 For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. In other words, he's acknowledging God as supreme and eternal. He's finally acknowledging that God is going to outlast him, Nebuchadnezzar. He's acknowledging that God's dominion is greater than his. He's properly looking at God. And what does that help him to see? Remember the Calvin quote, verse 35. He rightly looks at God, and then verse 35, he says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Once Nebuchadnezzar sees God properly. He sees man and himself properly as well. They're accounted as nothing, he says. That's a proper view of man in our sinfulness. 
If we come to God and still think that we're something without him, we haven't yet repented and haven't yet understood God or ourselves. Then, he says, none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? You see that? He's acknowledging the sovereignty of God and acknowledging that we don't get to question him. We don't get to come to God and say, what have you done, God? He does what he pleases. And what he pleases is good and right and just. Nebuchadnezzar finally understands that. He's changed and restored. Unlike chapter 3, this is true repentance and conversion. Isn't that amazing? Look at verse 37. He says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, speaking of himself there, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Sounds a lot like 1 Peter 5, 5, right? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. As we read this story, and in conclusion, I can't help but contrast Nebuchadnezzar with Jesus. Even verse 17, remember earlier, so that was the key verse of this chapter. Verse 17 tips us off to this comparison between Nebuchadnezzar and Jesus. Daniel told the king there, the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives, to, uh, gives it to whom he will. And here we go. Sets over it who? The lowliest of men. Do you see the truth here? And the contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and Jesus? Nebuchadnezzar was high and exalted. And yet... God would give the kingdom to the lowliest of men. Remember what Dustin preached on January 3rd from Philippians 2. I'm going to read this text to us. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see it? Jesus, the Son of God, humbled himself. In this text of Philippians, Jesus goes lower and lower and lower. He doesn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself becomes a mortal man, a servant even. 
Can he go lower? Yes, he can. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Yes, even lower. Death on a cross. Do you see how humble this Jesus is that we worship? So I ask you this morning, is that your posture? How low can I go? Am I humble enough yet? Jesus humbled himself as low as he could possibly go. And what does God do with him? He highly exalts him. Gives him the name that's above my name, your name, Nebuchadnezzar's name. Every name. Why? So that we should bow and worship and confess him as Lord to the glory of the Father. That's the reason that you and I and everyone exists. To give glory to God. When we choose to steal that glory for ourselves, it's sin. It's the greatest sin. God is not mocked. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to know this today. You have sinned against a holy and eternal God. Every single one of us have. That the scriptures tell us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The truth is, you are in Nebuchadnezzar's seat. God's word is spoken. It's certain and unchanging. So I ask you, will you listen? God is calling you to repentance. He's calling you to trust in his son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sin. Know that without Jesus, there is certain judgment. But know that with Jesus, there's hope of being restored. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the good news that we see in Daniel 4. So let's pray.